One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OIE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We are very excited to announce the first subscription-based monthly content delivery service that will not only enhance and expand your practice, but elevate the industry. Please visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today. That's oiebroadcasting.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day. The first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. Specialty contact lenses can significantly improve vision and many times save lives from total despair. Today's guest, Calgary optometrist Dr. Sheila Morrison has dedicated her life to fitting medical contact lenses. Her unique contact lens fitting techniques has helped severe eye disease patients who have been given little hope to ever see again. Dr. Morrison is a well-known international speaker, contact lens researcher, and a founding member of the Canadian Contact Lens Academy. Welcome, Dr. Morrison, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having me today. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to connect. It's always fun, especially, you know, these days with the whole, you know, pandemic and the decrease in the amount of time that we can all spend together in person. Um, I've really learned to look forward to these connections, and it is really nice to meet you here on, on uh, video and have some time together to talk about some of you, as you know, my passions and one of the driving things, well, a couple of the driving things that really have pushed my career forward, and I'm happy to just chat about it with you today. Well, I'm so excited to talk to somebody who knows about fitting medical contact lenses because those patients really need our help. And you're one of the people, one of the doctors on the forefront of that. Before, but before we start with that, let's talk about myopia control or uh, helping patients prevent, preventing them from getting more nearsighted. What is myopia and what is myopia control? Well, essentially myopia is another way of looking at it or how we explain it to a patient is being nearsighted. So blurry distance vision. Um, usually it's a result of uh, the optic of the eye being unbalanced in that the power of the eye um, is just a little bit too strong for the length. And so the typical symptom that a patient will present with in myopia would be blurry distance vision. So at what age do we start thinking about helping children that may have myopia or that may need myopia control? Is there a specific age or it doesn't really matter? You know, that's a really, it's a really important question. And we've changed the way that we look at this question um, with a lot more attention to it in the last maybe five years, just because what we've learned through evidence-based is that the time to actually start having these conversations with parents um, is actually before kids even become myopic. And so what we look at today in the clinic is things like risk factors, um, anytime there's a child in the clinic or really any patient with one or both parents that have nearsightedness or myopia, uh, siblings or any, you know, those symptoms of distance blur, even if they have that little tiny, tiny prescription, you know, a minus a half or something like that, that historically we may not have really considered enough to treat with glasses in the past. Today, we actually try to intervene and start educating very, very early. You know, when I have kids that are in or parents with a brand new baby, and I know that they're both, you know, nearsighted, I'll start talking to them even before their kid is, you know, one or two years old, just to get the idea started. Plant that seed early is how we like to manage myopia. You know, for years, we considered myopia as a condition. Now we're starting to look at myopia as possibly a disease. Do you look at myopia as a condition or a disease? Uh, both. Um, definitely, we look at it in a much different light, um, just because we know that today that within it's a lot more awareness is surrounding myopia, in that ocular disease can present in um, a higher 
prevalence in patients that are myopic, the more myopia that we end up with as adults, the more likely we are to develop different um, ocular disease conditions. And so, you know, we do look at it as both, but definitely more of a disease. And I do see that our governing bodies, including world health organizations, you know, here in Alberta, where I'm living and in Canada, our, you know, optometric associations, associations of ophthalmology are really starting to recognize this as more of a disease process in uh, the way that we manage it. And so similar to diseases like glaucoma, we actually look now at myopia in ways to prevent progression of myopia and looking at risk factors in ways that we never did before. So in that respect, certainly it's respected more as a disease process uh, today than it ever has been before. Do you think myopia is an epidemic? I mean, surely it's has that wrap for sure. And, you know, globally, what we see across the literature, we use that word a lot, actually. And the reason for that is, I think, twofold. One is because of the reality that it is growing and changing. And the other part of it is just the awareness. And so, you know, I feel like myopia has always been around and it's always been part of our practices. But with the, I guess, you know, advancements in digital technology and how closely connected we are globally now, you know, academics in North America are connected to Asian academics and in Australia and all over the world. And so as far as everybody coming on to that sort of level, you look at the pandemic epidemics, we're looking at huge populations. Absolutely. Myopia fits that part. So in the year 1900, in the 1900s, about 3% of the population had myopia. In 2000, it was about 40% of the population, and now it's estimated about 50% of the population is myopic, and, and by 2050, it's going to be about 60%. What do you think is driving that? No, the reason, the things driving that change um, are multifactorial. A big part of what is driving that change is our environment, and I would say that the it's kind of, I almost... I like to talk to patients about it when you look at, you know, the meme on Google, where we started out as, you know, a species that slowly got taller, 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 and then now we're creeping down again with all of the screens and everything around us. And in some ways, our environment, and in most ways, actually, our environment, I would say, has played the biggest role in why we see children presenting earlier in life with higher levels of myopia. And to see those numbers be as high as you've mentioned, which is absolutely accurate, um, lots and lots of people have spent time studying this and looking at large scale populations. You know, even in Canada, there's been studies that have come out just looking at larger populations of children. And certainly those numbers are growing and it's environmentally driven um, as one of the major players in that multifactorial piece. You think it's digital devices, not spending time outside. What do you think are the major drivers? You know, there's no cause and effect relationship that's really been directly shown. However, there are so many associative relationships shown in the literature related to screens and time outdoors. You know, as far as the time outdoors, I do have to say, want mention one thing because that does come up a lot in the clinic. Time outdoors, the actual literature shows that time outdoors has been shown to be protective against the onset of myopia at a younger age. And so, you know, again, we're still looking at, you know, how do light levels affect myopia? You know, what about all of the, you know, distant versus near viewing screens, all of these things are being looked at very, very closely. Um, and certainly, you know, time outdoors, we know it's protective when they're really young, we can say that with certainty, because we have literature to back up what we're saying to parents. But in the big picture, we do know, and I'll speak very openly to families. Um, that we see associations with all of these factors. So screens certainly play a role. There's other benefits to outdoor time too. So time outdoors plays a role in myopia, absolutely. And we encourage it certainly, uh, not just as a prevention or as something that we believe to be associated, but for other health benefits as well. You know, I mean, we've got to look at each other as whole human beings. And so that outdoor piece and screen time, there's other pros and cons of both of those pieces that certainly affect development in children. And actually we see it in adults now too, progressing a little later in life than we would have seen before. And I would say the studies and what people are seeing is that the associations are there with the screens. When I was a kid, the parents used to yell at us to come inside from playing outside. Now yeah. the parents are yelling at the kids to go outside and play. Isn't uh, that hilarious? You are that's that's such a fun way to look at it. And it's just a time change, isn't it? I know I get patients all the time, and it's actually gotten worse, I would say, with COVID, where I think people used to make almost, I want to say more of an effort 
but there's now this whole big thing of, well, it's been a pandemic. What else are we supposed to let them do? And, you know, or no longer are we forcing them outside. And I think that tide will shift back a little bit with more awareness about this issue. And again, I think just continuing as providers to reinforce all of the benefits. It's not just about your eyes, people. It's about the whole human being and your mental health and cognitive development and everything to have piece of the indoors and a piece of the outdoors too. So what are the risks of people becoming very nearsighted as far as other types of ocular diseases that are associated with myopia? We do see, um, and this is very long-term known, this is not new data, um, the you know, incidence and prevalence of conditions, um, the main ones that we discuss with parents. Um, you know, we know that actually almost everybody is going to get a cataract you know, where you and I are sitting here getting one. Um, I don't usually bring that up with parents just because of that fact. But although, you know, sometimes you can have a cataract a little earlier in life with higher levels of myopia, um, retina disease, macular degeneration, and glaucoma are some of the biggest ones that we discuss um, with parents. And in particular, one way to really explain what the dangers are, you know, if we think about an, a structure that is starts off at a certain you know, so much real estate for the tissue inside of it. And in the myopic eye, the more and more myopic an eye can get, meaning that it's getting longer and outgrowing the power of that eye. Usually high myopes have longer eyes than somebody like me, who's a minus half or so. You know, a high myope often will have that longer stretched out eye and those tissues inherently are at a lot higher risk for thin areas which also makes them at risk for retinal detachments, holes, um, tears, things that can be visually threatening. And so those are really important things that we discuss, you know, the, the every diopter counts when it comes to reducing those risks. Some of the new literature has shown a large, large impact even in, you know, saving somebody from becoming from a minus four to a minus five versus four to a six, that one diopter that you save in the four to five over a couple of years is actually very significant when it comes to predicting risk for ocular disease. I mean, as eye doctors, we use a scale. So someone who's zero and then minus one, minus two, that's the amount of nearsightedness. We use a, we use a unit called diopters, but there's a big difference between somebody who's minus three and minus seven, as far as visual disability goes, as far as getting up in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom, trying to do certain things. So to be able to control that, if we can, can really help somebody as far as vision goes. Absolutely. And that's another piece of, you know, talking about people as whole humans, you know, we're not looking at just protecting the structure of an eyeball, you know, yeah, we don't want it to tear, we don't want to lose vision from that. But you nailed it. Quality of life along the way, you know, the cost of higher prescription corrective devices, you know, every single year, that minus seven that you're talking about is paying almost double the minus three for their glasses lenses. And it goes on and on. And then, you know, quality of life. I mean, how many times have we had our, you know, patients in the clinic who, you know, can't see a thing unless they get their glasses? Heaven forbid anything happen in older age where can't find your glasses, you know, that is, can be a big risk factor. And if we can avoid that, why wouldn't we? It just, it would it makes no sense to not avoid the higher prescriptions for so many different reasons. You know, and other cultures do things to try to prevent kids from becoming more nearsighted. Like I saw something in Asia, I think it was in China where they use bars. So the kids don't get so close to the paper to try to prevent them from becoming nearsighted. Have you seen anything from other cultures that they may be using? I mean, we're gonna talk about what we're doing in the US, but anything else that you've seen in some other cultures that they do to try to prevent uh, nearsightedness? No, I'd say in, I think Asian, the, in Asia and parts of Asia, there are definitely some of the highest prevalence rates. And it's a topic that is taken very, very seriously. And so I would say probably some of those strategies, I haven't seen much more than what they're doing over there, aside from all of the therapies that we're going to discuss here. Um, in North America, we tend to stick to our typical optical correction and pharmaceutical intervention. Um, and what I usually see in North America, you know, we, especially we're coming from, you know, my background came from working on faculty at, you know, some of the schools 
of optometry and in our practice here, everything that we try to support is largely evidence-based um, 100% of the time. And so uh, to my knowledge, there aren't too many other ideas outside of the things that we're using that are evidence-based uh, to really appropriately manage those um, and do you know appropriate myopia management. Let's talk about risk factors. How about genetics? How much does genetics play a part? Even though we know back in 1900, only 3% were myopic and now we're at around 50%. But how much does genetics play if one parent has it or two parents have myopia? Huge risk. And that's why when we're screening these little kids, even at a very young age, actually almost before they're born in some cases, I'll start talking to new parents when I know that there is a genetic risk. The higher the you know double parents, you're almost inevitably going to end up with a myopic child very rarely that I'll see that we don't have a minus prescription when both parents and then uh, you know one or both parents has a huge impact and that's those are actually the two most important conversation pieces that I'll have with parents when discussing options in a myopia management program you know when we're discussing risk factors and looking at how much do we need to aggressively intervene do we need to start with two therapies at once or what is their risk moderate is their risk low high genetics, environment. So those are two huge, huge risk factors. And do we know why we're getting myopia? Is it UV light? Is it dopamine? Uh, there's a dopamine theory. What, what are some of the theories of why people become uh, myopic? You know, one of the most important, so genetics, that's a big one. That is a big, big, why do people come become myopic? Um, kind of a cool other theory that I like to use a lot when talking to families, because we do get asked that almost with every consultation for um, any nearsighted person, basically, it's like, well, what have I done wrong that my kid is now has this prescription? Like I, you know, they keep them outdoors and all this stuff and you can do everything right according to the literature that you know of. And still some patients, a lot of patients, as you can you know, know from these statistics that we're getting about globally, these numbers just raising you know, genetics. But uh, one way that I like to explain to parents, why is your kid getting a little more myopic is that optical defocus theory. It's kind of an interesting area. And if you think about the human body, it wants to be in equilibrium all 100% of the time if it could, not that we ever are. I mean, I'm a Libra. I'm always finding the balance in one way or another. And where bodies are the same, we're trying and trying to have things be at balance. And one way of looking at this in a very simplistic way for us all to understand what's actually happening and what the basis of a lot of our myopia management therapies are, is the eye wants to be normal. The eye wants to be clear. It wants a clear picture inside of it. So if at any point, based on genetics or there's a mismatch of the light, that creates a picture inside the eye that's blurry, you know, the eye wants to catch the light, it can't shrink, so it'll grow longer with blur. And that's one way of looking at it. And so, you know, again, optical defocus is a really important reason that we always want to correct fully and properly when it comes to managing myopia. Um, even if we aren't, you know, although the standard is really to perform myopia control therapies today, even in the case where we are correcting just for vision, that's why it's really important never to undercorrect anymore, not overcorrection. We want Goldilocks and the three bears just right so that we can really nail that clear vision. And then as far as the myopia control, that's a whole nother and I'll let you, if you want me to get into it, that whole can of worms is kind of a fun one. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but you, you talked about fully correction. It's, it's very common that a patient will come in and say, I don't want the full prescription. Just give totally. me a little bit less. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what's the theory? You just kind of mentioned it, but can you go into that a little bit more by now? You know, and it's a, it's an old, it's an old is the wrong word. It's, you know, we are constantly changing what we do in science based off of lessons that we learn. And at one point there was a theory that said undercorrecting is absolutely the way to go for children in particular to prevent. And I do see a lot of patients of different all ages with plus or minus prescriptions, having the perception that they will become dependent on that correction. If they're given the full correction, they want their eyes to work a little bit. They don't wanna be fully dependent. And so I do see patients asking for that. But again, when it comes to myopia, 
if we're undercorrecting during those aging years between, you know, basically, you know, pre preschool up until our kind of mid twenties, we run the likelihood of actually accelerating the growth and increasing our prescription, which is kind of a misconception by patients. I think what happens sometimes is getting a really clear picture too for somebody. Um, and then they take it off. They're more reliant on that really clear picture. And so they'll feel sometimes that the eyes are becoming weakened by their full correction. And this happens in hyperopes as well, or the patients that are actually farsighted and need the near help. And so again, it's a misconception um, and especially scientifically important when we are managing children in particular to correct where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. In the winter, there's been some studies that show that myopia increases three to four times, uh, gets worse in the winter months. Do you have a theory about that? You know, a lot of people talk about that as depending on where you are globally too. Um, winter time is very different in countries like where I am, where indoor time is very, you know, the norm, you know, versus winter time in other parts of the world. Um, light levels also have been speculated to play a role as far as like, where is the sun in the world during those months? And those are studies, the light studies are, you know, ongoing in regards to how it be, how it's actually affected, but they're all kind of play a role. So my feeling, especially where I am at is my Canadian kiddos are spending more time inside during the winter months. And that's just part of it with that viewing level being distant versus near. And do you think we could predict you know, around age five, if somebody's going to become myopic? Generally, yes. I would say generally, um, but there are exceptions to those, right? And so, you know, it's really amazing. We do our very best to predict everything that we can. And then lo and behold, there'll be, you know, a lot of the time kids will do things that you don't expect or have a genetic that doesn't, isn't expressed in the way you would expect. But I would argue that based off of kind of evidence-based risk factors, I am confident most of the time and putting my money on what is about to happen. And one of the major things that we look at is where does a child lie in regards to their age norm? And so a five-year-old, when we have a developing eye, if we were to have an eye that is developing perfectly from birth to become a zero prescription eye, that perfect, perfect length, it actually starts on the other side of zero in the plus direction when they're born. That means that babies and kids up to about three, four, five years old are actually a little bit farsighted. And the reason that works for kids is because they can flex those eye muscles without even thinking about it and have clear vision at all distances as their eye is growing to become zero. So if we see children at age five who have shifted faster from two or three past their expected age growth. And there are starting to be charts and data coming out for different demographics all over the world for what is normal growth. For example, should at this age, you know, how much shift should a child be making each year toward the zero? And if you look at parental factors, so genetics is the biggest one at that age and how are they shifting towards zero? Are they shifting at a rate that's faster than their age norm? Then you can pretty much predict that they're going to be myopic. We also know that children who are zero when they're three or four are aiming for myopia because they should only be zero when they're five or six years old, according to their developmental age norm to be zero. Let's talk about pre-myopia and let's talk about screen time. Do you have recommendations for screen time from for toddlers, for kids, you know, at different ages? We do. And it's a tough one, especially coming, like I mentioned, coming out of this global pandemic and parents are working from home and kids have been at home. So I've really seen a lot of apologies as though I'm going to judge them when they come in with their kids, you know, admitting this horrible screen time. And it's really just part of the world that we live in. What we do recommend, though, is to follow our governing body um, recommendations. So in Canada, it's the Canadian Optometric Association. Um, there's pediatric associations. And generally, when they're really small, before two years old, they actually, the recommendation is actually no screen time. And I think, to me, the way that I interpret that for myself and for my patients, do the best you can. We're, you know, we're all 
live in a world that it's digital in some ways. You don't have to, you know, prevent your toddler from talking on the phone to their grandparent on FaceTime. That has more of a benefit for that little person to develop and learn their family than I believe that the screens do. But definitely I do recommend minimizing screen time, especially up close on small devices until they're past two. And then after that, the recommendation, generally most governing bodies say no more than one, maybe two hours when they're past six, seven, eight. And it's, you really, you know, should avoid much more screen time than that. So someone that comes into the office and we're doing a workup, the, the doctor is doing a workup for myopia, what kind of tests are we going to do? First and foremost would be a basic eye exam. So we want to make sure that kids, we understand just like any other disease process or any other condition that we are managing is we need to make sure that there are no other factors that can play a role in best vision to expect and all of that. So routine eye exam. And in addition to that, in a full scope myopia practice like we have, um, and there is a range because not everybody wants to, you know, fit every management strategy. And it, you know, there's a whole business model that kind of impacts what we can and cannot offer as any healthcare provider. And what we typically use in addition to routine eye exam testing would be looking at a thorough health history, you know, a little bit more family history specifically related to nearsightedness. And um, we look at other risk factors such as axial length of the eye. And we always, as a baseline, will perform a cycloplegic refraction just to get a good baseline. And if we're doing axial length moving forward, we don't need to cycle these kids all the time unless there's another reason for it. Um, I also like to perform accommodative testing in our myopia workups just because we may need that data. You should anyways for routine exams, you know, basic accommodative testing and binocular vision function. But really importantly, if we are using any pharmaceuticals for myopia control or myopia management, that can actually be something that we need to monitor for symptoms. So that's why we use those things. We measure those things in any myopia workup as well. And when you say cycloplegia, we're talking about using drops just so people understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we knock out there, we use the pharmaceutical drops similar to the adult exams, but the ones we use for kids are really intended to really knock out their, their ability to flex and focus on things up close because kids are very strong without realizing it and they can trick us. So they can flex their eye muscles looking at basically anything. You'd never know it unless you're really careful when you're doing their eye exam. And what we want in the myopia clinic is to get an excellent, accurate baseline, which is absolutely obtainable without cyclo, without the pharmaceutical drops, but as kind of a standard with these kids, just to make sure that we're getting very clean data and not overestimating the minus prescription on the first visit, we'll use those drops just to get the cleanest, most reliable, best data that we can. How about corneal topography? Thank you for reminding me, always. I wouldn't do anything for any hint of medical contact lens, maybe without a corneal topographer. So we use that as well. And the main purpose of that for the myopia clinic would be to evaluate candidacy for um, contact lens therapies and myopia control. And what does topography tell us? Okay, so corneal topography tells us a lot, actually. What does it not tell us is the question. So there's, depending on your topographer, and so there's you know a bunch of different types of technologies. There are numerous um, ways that we measure corneal topography. And I would say there's probably two ways that I look at the topographers of the world. Um, one is to evaluate for cornea disease processes. And then the other one kind of does the same thing. It's part of the disease process would be shape, but the other way that we use topography would be to uh, look at shape and design lenses from that shape. And that applies to all kinds of different medical lenses, um, soft, hard, anything. Um, and so in our clinic for the myopia clinic, we utilize corneal topography for shape and eye height and things like that. Um, and also looking at the amount of corneal astigmatism versus refractive sill and all these other things. How about corneal tomography? Which one? Like a pentacam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's also used in the same way. Um, we can get all of that data from the Pentacam as well. And the difference with Pentacam, though, is that is the instrument that I use more for um, the disease process. So you can use a Pentacam for everything, just to be really clear. 
Absolutely. The difference with um, the Pentacam and that type of technology is that we're also getting imaging of the shape of the back surface of the cornea, whereas some of our other typically used corneal topographers are front surface only. Pentacam will look at the back surface, which is also I actually use usually anytime I'm evaluating a child for uh, candidacy for orthokeratology for myopia control. Um, just if there's any family history of keratoconus, we want to rule out and make sure that there's absolutely no possible way we're putting that kid at risk by placing something on their eye that could eventually exacerbate that condition. What do you think of the psychological and the sociological implications of myopia? Quality of life and mental health, you know, that's such a great question. So, and I have a huge passion for that because again, a major driver in my practice and our practice in all of these circles, you and I sitting here largely is really to elevate our level together to provide better outcomes for patients. And they are human beings that are also a brain and have, you know, things like their confidence levels and ability to perform at different activities. Um, and so I think that it plays a major, major role. Um, you know, there is a lot of talk out there and just maybe I'll speak to firsthand experiences, you know, working with children, you know, there is no, no doubt in the fact, because we see it all the time, you know, a small child with a high prescription who doesn't have great quality vision and also does not have the emotional intelligence at that point to really sort through it you know, we get kids that aren't walking well, don't have the confidence to go off on their own away from their parents, you know, maybe don't have the ability to be able to jump off that high bar at the playground and really learn those motor skills. You put glasses on them and that just innate physical, just, you know, bare bones abilities all change just, just like that. And that's from a very young age that's programmed. That's just naturally being able to, you know, physically work through our environment. And so myopia higher levels, of course, you know, if we can get that under control, that's obviously a positive thing for that basic development. And then we also see the whole side as we grow of, you know, mental health and quality of life and confidence to do tasks. You know, we, there's studies that have shown that, you know, the ability to, you know, wear glasses or contact lenses sometimes with freedom from glasses puts a child at a whole different level at times with their confidence and ability to grow and do things. So vision absolutely plays a huge role in mental health. And another example that I'm thinking out loud about as we're talking about this is really, really fascinating is when we talk about vision loss on the other side. So not the young kids that we're trying desperately to provide great outcomes for, but you know, on the other side of it, those that have had vision loss related to let's just say high myopia and complications from that who are unable to care for their families or unable to work or on disability due to vision. Again, a huge hit to your mental health and quality of life at that point. This is a, a philosophical question, but myopia is, could be more considered more of a broader problem that there's so many people that are myopic now, so many kids that we're, it shows that we're living our life out of balance. Mm -hmm. We're living too much indoors and not enough outdoors. And it affects us both psychologically, emotionally. What do you think about that? I 110% agree with that statement. And it's the pendulum swinging. And it's interesting how things ebb and flow in this world. And, you know, we're kind of seeing all these different things in, in so many areas of life. And this is something that is continuous. If you look at history, history tends to predict in some cases what actually maybe our versions of our outcomes in the future. And absolutely, I, I think that we have struck a balance that needs to swing back the other direction a little bit for lots of different reasons. Vision is certainly one of them. Myopia is certainly one of them, but in the greater picture, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I would stand on a, you know, stand on my soapbox all day screaming that because it's, I completely agree with that statement. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We are very excited to announce the first subscription-based monthly content delivery service that will not only enhance and expand your practice, but elevate the industry. Please visit oyebroadcasting.com 
and sign up today. That's oiebroadcasting.com. So one of our jobs as eye doctors is we want to try to prevent kids from becoming myopic so they don't have these type of psychological issues. So what's the objective of myopia management as far as the way you see it? You know, our goal with myopia management, and this is a primary pillar of the beginning of any program for a child and their caregivers, is our goal in myopia management is not necessarily realistic to 100% stop the change. Our goal in myopia management is to slow or halt at some points, but really to slow and optimize the outcome. And one way that I explain this to caregivers of kids or even to patients themselves if they're old enough is, you know, we cannot expect a halt because during those school age years, we're still growing. These kids are getting taller. We want them to grow. And with that growth comes a certain acceleration of the eye length that's naturally along the level that it should be. And so our goals with myopia management would be to optimize at some periods where we're maybe not going through a growth spurt maybe we do see halts. There's periods of time in my kids that my kids, I say my kids, but you know, our, our myopia kids, they're just, they become part of our family. And, you know, there are times where they, they will have periods where there is no axial length change or they are very stable, but I'm never upset when there is some amount of growth because we want our kids to grow. And that's important when talking to caregivers and setting expectations that are realistic um, with outcomes that are actually reachable because they're going to grow a bit. We have, we have different approaches. We have pharmaceutical management. We have optical approaches. What's some of the current research evidence-based uh, medicine that shows that these approaches work? And we're going to go into each one individually, but in general, generally, what are some, what is some of the research out there that you could tell us about? Yeah, the research is extensive. And, you know, it's almost too big of a bite to take um, to really hit into all of the studies. Um, generally, I think uh, one avenue for anybody who's wanting to learn more about the best resources, and there's stuff being done globally, you know, started out on animal models, and we've been studying kids and adults and normal populations. Um, the International Myopia Institute is um, a collaborative group that tends to put out great white papers and put a lot of the studies that have been done together into resources that are accessible all in the same place. And that is a great place to start for any practitioner out there or any parent that's wanting to learn a little bit more about the evidence base because the studies are extensive and uh, there's you know studies happening all over the world as we speak. So we're gonna get into the individual uh, different types of treatments, but how do the, in general, how do these treatments work? So two ways that the treatments work. And so uh, the theories of why they the work. theories. Yeah. So the theories. So we'll start with the more ambiguous, the one that's a little bit um, maybe it's not less studied, but it's only more recently just barely begun to be understood. And that's the pharmaceutical approach. Um, there are a number of different drugs um, around the world that have had shown some promise in controlling myopic progression. Um, most commonly used medication is atropine. And the way just to cut to exactly down to the point, you know, for many years, we used atropine off label, which is commercially approved for the use um, to dilate the eye and relax the accommodative mus muscles. Um, and off label, we have been using atropine for a very, very long time to slow the rate of myopic progression without really understanding how it worked. And the concentrations have been changing over time too. And finally, actually in the last 12 to 24 months, we're finally getting to a place in the literature where we're starting to understand exactly why this is working. One of the most recent um, theories that has been proven to be true is that the use of the atropine actually acts to strengthen a layer in the eye called the choroid. The choroid is one of the strong layers in the eyeball itself and by strengthening that layer, the choroid is less likely to stretch out longer and longer. There's other work that looks at how atropine works related to the accommodative system and a couple of other theories, but most recently that's what's in the literature is the impact on the choroid and that has been measured. Um, the other really neat thing that we have in the literature now is more direction and um, on the concentrations. 
because we've been using off-label a variety of different concentrations over the last decade or two, and only in the last maybe one to two years. Um, last 12 months for sure, a new study came out in 2020 um, showing different concentrations of atropine and what is the most effective um, in that. And so that's been um, pretty amazing to continue to do better with that for sure. Talk about peripheral defocus as a strategy, as maybe a way of treatment, a cause, or so that's a little bit of it before, but it's a very yeah. confusing, uh, it's a very confusing topic. It is. And so the peripheral defocus, so atropine, that's, we're talking pharmaceutical side, and this is exactly how I would explain it. If you had, you were sitting here, wanted myopia control or your, you know, friend or your child or your whoever, I would say, and I would draw it like this with my hands, you know, show A and B, A pharmaceutical, B optical. And then we move down the optical train and the primary driving theory about why the optical correction works for myopia control is, as you mentioned, the optical defocus theory. And basically that theory was actually came from the University of Houston, um, Dr. Earl Smith um, was kind of the founding sort of idea of that theory um, quite a, a while ago now with a variety of studies and extensions of studies that actually started off on form deprivation, looking at animal models where eyes that did not get the right stimulation would either grow or not grow. And from that idea, slowly over time with multiple, multiple different ways of looking at this, we come back to that story about how the eye wants to be normal. So as we talked about earlier today about you know, under or over correcting myopia, we just wanna be just right because if that eye has a blurry picture in the back, it can't shrink shorter, so it often will grow. That's the idea, that's how I explain it. Now in myopia progression, one of the extensions of that theory is that when we give just clear distance vision with traditional glasses or contact lenses that puts a clear picture just right on the back of the retina, good for us, we can see, but what about the side of the eye? The light rays are all in focus right on the back, but on the side of the eye, all the light rays and the picture is not clear. So the theory with myopia control options in contact lenses and in spectacles is that we place a clear picture in the back of the eye through the pupil, but in the peripheral cornea through also through the pupil, that's the tricky thing is delivering all these optics intentionally where we bend light so that it is clear at the back and is also clear on the sides. By making light clear on the back and the sides with myopia control lenses, contact lenses, and some glasses designs, that is how we act to slow the growth. When the eye feels like it's clear everywhere, it doesn't grow as fast. We're going to talk about how we do that. But first, I want to say, I want to ask you about when do we intervene? For Earlier, the better. So anytime that we have a child for that falls out of their, we could say, emetropic age norm, so they're progressing at a faster rate than what we would want. Maybe they're a minus, you know, 0.75 at five years old. Intervene. Um, our treatment strategies are always changing, um, or I guess I should say evolving. I wouldn't say changing, just getting better. And one of the things that's a hot topic for us to really consider in our practices today is, you know, the reality that, you know, why wouldn't we intervene earlier? Why wouldn't we put a kid with risk factors and barely any prescription on atropine so that we can prevent. And that is a huge topic in other parts of the world, like Australia, um, there are studies that have been started on early intervention and the benefits of that. And I do predict that we will be seeing this. It's similar to, again, preventing you know, diabetes and preventing other you know, systemic disease. We start early and with kids, the time to intervene in terms of communication is almost when they're born. As soon as we see risk factors, as soon as we see any um, you know, shift outside of their age norm, that is when we start having the conversation, weigh the risk and benefit of how high is their risk and what is the likely prognosis? How serious are this family to just get on this now? And then you know, what I do now is intervene as early as it's possible. So you mentioned atropine. Now let's talk about that in a little bit more detail, the pharmaceutical uh, treatment of myopia. What starting dose do you think is appropriate? 
the recent literature, we even up until a, two years ago, we're, we were all prescribing about a 0.01%. Um, a few new studies came out this year that have shown that the 0.01 is not likely to be quite as effective in controlling axial length as we thought it was. And so the starting point kind of depends on the age of the child. And usually 0.05 is what I start out with. Um, anytime that we are below eight years old, eight to 10-ish, I'll start at either 0.05 or 0.025. And then a little older, depending on if their risk factors are slowing down a little bit, I may start them at the 0.025 or 0.01 as they get older. But it's all dependent on side effects and interactions. And are they already doing optical therapy? You know, are, the, are we doing any other therapies or is it just the atropine? Um, and blue eyes versus brown eyes, you know, all of these different things when making that decision. Now, this is a, a medication that's been around since 1874. So it's not like something that's new that we're using. What could we expect for the decrease in progression? What percentage would you say? We try not to talk about um, the reduction in progression in percentages as much anymore when it comes to the recent literature, but for this purpose, and when I'm talking to parents, absolutely, I still, it's the only way to really vaguely communicate the message. And so typically I'm still saying approximately a 50 to 60% reduction is what we used to say. Is that accurate from in a scientific study anymore? Probably not, but absolutely it's about 50 to 60% is what we'll tell families. And that holds for the contact lens therapies as well. Spectacle therapies, depending on the lens design that you're using, are usually a little bit less effective, depending, although they are catching up. Um, so contact lens therapy and atropine tend to ride out on the, about the same level of efficacy when it comes to controlling myopia. And how about the side effects of atropine? Yeah, so typically we see the highest side effects, obviously, and the higher concentrations. But the nice thing about the side effects, which are sometimes uh, pupil dilation, which is what the medication is intended to do. Um, sometimes some kids will have a slightly decreased accommodation and a little bit of a sting when the drop goes in. So kids just love that. So that's one thing. They get used to the burn, whatever, that we don't care about that, but it's the accommodation and the pupil size that we watch for. Um, small kids tend to be a lot more tolerant of those symptoms. And they also, um, assuming, which is why we do like binocular vision testing prior to putting any child in atropine, often little kids will have a huge accommodative reserve anyways, and I do often see, you know, practitioners and bless all of our hearts, everyone has a different clinical experience. I do see side effects, but in the kids that I keep on atropine, it's the ones that have a high enough reserve that they're slightly decreased from that accommodation is really not significant in their life at all. And, you know, kids have big pupils anyways, half the time and do just fine with sunglasses outdoors. And so a lot of times it's, you know, it's not a huge deal. Now, side effects go away about in a lot of kids after a month of use of atropine and the, the height of the side effects because we prescribe atropine at bedtime happen during sleep, which is a magical thing because often all the side effects are pretty much done by the time they wake up anyways. How often do you have to give a, a kid uh, reading glasses because they're getting too much uh, blur up close from the atropine? I would say seldom for me. Yeah, I usually, we, I often, if they're at the level where they need the reading glass or they need um, any kind of correction, um, I do have a huge part of our practice that's optical treatment only. Although I see in the future, it's going to be more standard to have kids on both. I would say probably almost all the time, why not? Um, but uh, I don't have to use reading glasses often for atropine. Um, and the kids that have those types of side effects, there's very few of them that I can't control with the optical therapies if they're having that big of a problem with their accommodation. Now, the exception would be little kids that have an underlying bit of maybe lower accommodation to start with, maybe a bit of eye posture issue, and their parents just still really want them on atropine for whatever the reason. I have a couple of them that we do use reading glasses. Not often, though. And how about sports? Do you think it affects kids in sports? So older, it depends on their side effects. So older kids, I'm always hunting for that because I don't want them to have, you know, glare from lights when they're driving. If they happen to be learning how to drive at 15, 16 years old, 
um, and we tend to use lower concentration anyways for those older ages. Um, but I, I do have athletes in the clinic um, and I absolutely recall myself being a college athlete and anything you can do to make your vision that 2015, I don't want to lose like anything in my distance vision when you're getting into a little bit older ages. That's why the younger kids are great with atropine and it is a commitment. So they need to keep taking it. But, you know, I am really quite mindful of looking at the impact of any of the pharmaceuticals or any product that we choose to use, including multifocal lenses on kids, if it decreases their quality of life and happiness and ability to perform at high level activities that they want to. So again, balancing out who this person is as a whole and kind of what makes sense and what doesn't. So you're a college athlete, what sport? Soccer. <laughs> you're a soccer I tried player. at lots of things and that one was my, that was my baby. So yeah. I played at, yeah, here in Calgary. So I'm back to where I, where I started, I guess, after a hiatus away. So yeah. Did you play soccer or any other sports? I played baseball. Nice. Okay. Okay. So Calgary, is it Calgary or is it Calgary? Depends if you're from here or if you're foreign. <laughs> so if you're from here, it's Calgary. And if you're not from here, it's Calgary. So oh, okay. you can be in with the locals or <laughs> so. Okay, I was always wondered about that. So let's talk about spect spectacles. So yep. now there's glasses that are going to be coming out by Zeiss, by Essilor, that are going to be used for myopia control. Anything you could share with us about that? Spectacle options are great. You know, they're not usually, there's a lot of reasons that um, in some patients, it makes a lot more sense to do contact lens therapies. You know, all of the, all of the options have a spot in the toolbox. Spectacles are great for kids that just aren't ready for contacts, don't want contacts. Um, glasses partner really nicely with atropine and the new lens designs have been very effective in a lot of our patients. That being said, you know, the hot, fast progressors, high progressors, lots of risks, you know, in a lot of those cases, we tend to just at least educate and influence or not influence. Our job is not to, our job is to really to educate and empower families to, you know, have the right medical advice and, you know, feel comfortable with these decisions because otherwise they're going to go elsewhere. It's a competitive world we live in today. And one of the benefits of say contact lens, for example, versus a spectacle option or one of the differences that we see the contact or the ortho will follow the eye around in every gaze position. Um, whereas kids will be able to look under over and around their glasses. So whereas the technology is there in some of the newest glasses designs, there are ways that kids get around it. And if the contact is on their eye or they're doing the night sleeping lens where they have correction all the time, you're giving them myopia control whether they want it or not. So glasses too, the you know, designs are only recently comparable and that's really only when they're worn exactly over the people where they have to be, which in young kids can be tough, right? Because they take them off or pull them down or whatever and they're not getting any control then if they're not in the right spot. Are spectacles, do they use the peripheral defocus? They do, yeah. And some of the newer, it's really cool what they can do. We used to think that we could use a bifocal design um, where we're getting kind of part of the blurry near vision. And essentially what the defocus does is puts the minus distance correction in the back of the eye, but uses little plus lenses, whether that's in the periphery of a contact lens or on the cornea and ortho K or little dots of plus that, simultaneously will put clear pictures on the inside in shorter distances away like the side of the eye so yeah optical defocus all the way so let's turn our attention to contact lenses for myopia control something that i know you're very passionate about you've done research in let's start off with soft contact lenses mm -hmm. tell us about that uh, which ones work which are available and uh, uh what what kind of success have you had Soft lenses have been around for a long time for myopia control. And in this, the literature, um, the most studies have been performed with a centered distance design, meaning um, not necessarily simultaneous vision optic. That's just because that's what most of the studies were performed in early on. And so we tended to use a lot in the past of, um, I'm not gonna mention you know, all the brand names right now, but you know, lenses that have a centered D design um, now today we have options that have rigorous studies on safety and many, many years of testing in daily contact lenses for kids. 
And I would say that when it comes to simple prescriptions up to, you know, a minus six, whatever the range with very little corneal astigmatism, daily contact lenses are absolutely, you know, have the highest safety profile. They're easy for families to use and give us kind of an optic with rings in it that provides distance and the near on the side optic for myopia control. Now, as far as soft lenses go, we also use custom soft lenses and monthly modality lenses in cases where we have prescriptions that require moderate to high amounts of corneal astigmatism. And it's tough because what we have to do then is get the whole optic, just like fitting our presbyopes, which can be tricky with when it comes to astigmatism, getting all the optic for the distance vision, the reading in for our presbyopes and the toric prescription, getting it all lined up is tricky. And it's the exact same case with the myopia control lenses, uh, but we do use them when we need higher amounts of astigmatism. Custom soft, I usually reserve for really big corneas. So eyes that just can't wear commercially available lenses, or if I have to do even higher amounts of corneal um, uh, astigmatism correction um, and commercially available lenses are not necessarily stable enough. What does pupil size have to do with it? You know, it's the smaller the pupil, the harder it is to get all that optic in and the better quality of the vision. So, you know, it's, it's actually easier to deliver great myopia control optics um, when we're fitting patients that have a little bit larger pupil because we can get all that vision into the eye. We really have to mind our centration of these devices, including glasses, when the pupil's not too big. Because if you can imagine, the big window, we can shoot a lot more stuff right through that window in the way that we want versus a small window. It's a little more particular to get everything bent in there the way that is most optimal for myopia control. Which is better for the small pupil? Is it the ortho-K lenses or is it the soft uh, myopia control lenses? I think it's more relative to other factors than pupil size because we can fit both on both pupil sizes when it comes down to it. And I would look at when we're considering orthokeratology versus soft lenses, pupil size plays more of a role for me in the lens design that I will choose, for example, in orthokey or the design and the optic and the placement of the optic in a soft lens. But the primary deciding factor for me when I'm looking at orthokey hard lenses at night versus soft lenses would be looking at the physical structure of refractive error, how high is it? and also looking at the person as a whole and what their activities are, what their interest level is, their age, and what the rest of the family has done in the past. And what prescription can we start fitting these lenses at? We can fit anything really. I mean, when it comes to uh, low minus prescriptions, I tend to more times than not, if we need the um, correction for distance, but it's very, very low, unless there's a reason not to fit them in like a daily, I'll use just a daily soft because we can control the peripheral ad that we're giving that patient. Orthokeratology works a little bit differently. For example, a daily kid soft myopia control lens that has a minus a half prescription and a minus two prescription has approximately the same ad for myopia control in both of those minus prescriptions because it's built into the soft plastic. When we look at orthokeratology, the amount of myopia control plus that we get is about approximately not right equal to, but can be limited by the amount of starting distance correction we need. So for example, if I have a minus 50, my, my minus 50 patient that I put in the soft lenses, if I was to put them into ortho K with the designs that are commercially available, the most myopia control treatment I could really get on that eye, if I really pumped it up would be minus 0 0.75 or one, because it's a one-to-one -one relationship. And we know from the literature that we need a little bit more myopia control usually um, to be effective. And so lower prescriptions up to a minus one, unless their swimmers are really, really young and the parents don't want them in soft lenses, the lower prescriptions might be very well suited in a daily lens. Now, once we hit about a 150 or even a 125 and up, you know, if there's ortho K and soft, there's lots of things that we look at, but the 150 or the two prescription would have about 150 or two diopters of myopia control if they were an ortho K. Fitting multifocal contact lenses, 
presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.